Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. An amazing week in front of us. Very excited uh, today. We've got a lot to cover, certainly a lot to cover. So we're going to pretty much dive right into it. But please make sure you are sharing the Andrew Kubreder show with others, especially with us going into session. It's a very important time for us to be on top of it. It's a very important time to, to make sure other people are tuning in to as well. Um, so I do, I do want to encourage you. We've got a lot of topics to cover today. We've got some legislation to talk about uh, coming from Matt Lockett, that has has caused a little bit of a debate online among some different people. We'll go over that. The Republican Party of Kentucky passed an important um, resolution. But first, I had a listener send me an email, ask me a question uh, about my show from Friday. So this is what uh, this is from a Trey. So this is what uh, uh, Trey had to say. He said. Hey, Andrew, started checking out your Twitter show in the past few weeks. Uh, it's all over the place, but obviously you can hear it on Twitter. A uh, few weeks from seeing you reply to tweets. Great content. Appreciate your approach and pulse on KY politics. On the 1-5-2024 show, you're discussing the topics of business and tax credits, specifically about Annie Bashir's state of the Commonwealth. Could you expand upon your thoughts about businesses coming into certain areas solely because of tax credits? I live in Henderson, Kentucky, and a large Pratt paper plant has been a huge economic jolt to the area. I imagine the incentives help Pratt decide on Henderson. I want limited government, so I wrestle with the idea of cutting a business deal so that more people can be hired, which allows for payroll slash city slash county slash state taxes. How have you worked through this? If local officials don't do this, then wouldn't we see other domestic, possibly foreign areas win that investment? So first, let's uh, uh, break this down in a few different ways, few conversations. So those of you who listen to the show may remember that even as I was issuing uh, my statements that I don't like these hundreds of millions being given out to areas. And I, I went a tiny bit into the governmental philosophy on that. Uh, one of the things I talked about was that if you have massive unemployment in an area, so I myself struggle with this completely. Um, and, and there is the idealistic world where nobody's handing out these incentives and nothing else. And it's just simply a, uh, an open and free market where the taxpayer isn't throwing in money to encourage businesses, but that's not the world we live in it and we have to be realistic about where we are currently, right? So in what situations would I say, eh, okay, maybe a governmental bringing in um, these employers is okay or reasonable or just something we have to do? Well, well, one is you certainly want to look at a one job increase to tax 
cost ratio. That's part of it. But a large part of this first is when is it government's even responsibility in the first place to care about this? And, and there's a few situations where I think obviously this conversation comes into play. One would be is if you have a massive amount of unemployment in the area. So if you've had a massive amount of unemployment, and of course, when those people were working, you were taxing them, taking their money, but now they've lost their jobs, they're in the area, they have no sources of income, well, then perhaps a government in the area may want to say, okay, let's go ahead and try to attract in some employers with cash incentives like this in order to offset that unemployment. Now, that is one situation. Of course, that's not like, as I called out Ford uh, and a few others uh, of these, one of the things we can look at is unemployment. I mean, Ford's bringing, um, according to Annie Bashir, 2,000 jobs into Harding County over the next year. That's what Annie Bashir said. But, you know, as of six months ago, this was before Ford hired 400 people. Well, Harding County only had 1,900 people looking for work. So there's already, a, and that was, that was uh, already, there were around 4,000 job openings in Hardin County at the time. So there was already 2,000 more jobs than there was people looking for them. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't look into Henderson County's situation before Pratt Paper had came in, how many jobs, what was the unemployment, how many people are looking for employment and other things like that. Now, there's another situation specifically in Kentucky that we can talk about too as well outside of unemployment. So first I gave you one situation where I say maybe government needs to step in and do something only because government has already done all this everywhere else, right? Uh, only because government uh, has already stolen money from these people and because government requires to steal money from people in order to continue to operate uh, only because other places are doing the same thing. So you have to compete with that. And obviously it's very hard uh, as a person, if you're actually in government, there's, there's ideology and then there's realisticness and it's very hard for a person inside a government to look at a large amount of unemployed people and say, yes, I've got the money. Or I could, I could do moves to bring in jobs for you, but I'm not going to do it. That's just unrealistic and it's not going to happen. So what are some other options here? What are some other places? Well, there's something else here in Kentucky uh, that, that matters too as well. See, here in the state, due to how we've set up our taxing constitutionally, your local counties and cities can't charge a sales tax, a local sales tax. So there's a few ways they make their money. One is off property tax. One is uh, off of like insurance taxes, things like that. Another one though, is what's called employment tax. And this is what the uh, uh, Trey there had sent and asked the question about was that this provides an economic boom to the area because the government uses those payroll taxes to fund themselves. So another argument you may hear outside of unemployment, where maybe this could be a situation. So you say, well, people are employed, but honestly, we need, they're employed maybe in other counties. And so we in this, this county are providing them water and police and when they're at home and fire and, and you know, all these uh, sewer uh, roads, you know, we're providing these services to them, but we have no way of collecting revenues because the way our state's set up, it's harder to collect revenues off a person who lives in your county compared to a person who works in your county. And so the argument is, is that, look, we need more jobs in the area to make ends meet. And my response to that is, to a degree, you don't. Okay, now, now follow me here. Uh, anytime I hear people say, well, we need, we need job growth, we need this growth in the area, I always respond with why. 
Why, why is that government's role? Why is it that government actually needs to see constant population growth in the area and constant job growth in the area? Why does government care? Now, the only reason why government cares is because they want more money. They want more tax revenues into them. And, and that's mainly to do with the fact they just want a whole lot more power because more money equals more power. Now, a claim they will make publicly, though, is that, well, we can't afford to deliver the services we have to now, so we need more people and jobs in the area in order to be able to deliver those services to our citizens and make ends meet. And my first response to that is, is well, not my first response, but first, there is some, I guess you would call it truth to that to a degree. There's some fiscal cliffs that you could look at in a county or city and say, like, I could see how until you're to this point, that could be an argument that you do need to see growth to be able to afford uh, to provide even essential services to an area. For an example, um, you know, if you've got 5,000 people living in an area, depending on that geographical size of that area, two, especially you may need, let's say, two police officers or three police officers on uh, a staff at all times, on duty at all times. So that means in 24-hour shift, you need nine police officers, you got days off, everything else. So maybe you need, let's say, 15 police officers to cover 5,000 people in a geographic area because of its size. But let's say that geographic area grows to 10,000. Well, you don't necessarily need more officers if it is the geographic area that was causing the expense to rise. And so there's a fiscal cliff there where your growth from 5,000 to 10,000 doesn't cause an increase in costs to the county, but it does increase revenue so you can easily afford and spread out that cost of like the police force amongst more taxpayers. Now, I got a few more thoughts on this here. Uh, we're running up on a break though. Sorry about that. Uh, so after this break, we'll continue finish breaking this down and then go into Matt Lockett's proposed constitutional amendment. We'll have that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperator show, your source for Kentucky politics from a constitutional and conservative perspective. If you want to reach out to the show, be sure you can email me at info at Once again, that's info at We'll be back after this short break. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. For the break, I was responding to a viewer question on when is it okay or how do you wrestle with or how do you handle uh, when, when the government can hand out these large dollar-dollar bill subsidies to private organizations into an area. And the first thing I established was is that uh, you got to look at unemployment. And right now in this state, we have more job openings than we have uh, people looking for jobs. So as a state, unemployment isn't an issue as a state. Now, you could look regionally and say if you have regional unemployment issues, maybe the state wants to step in and help out there, um, or the local governments want to step in and make a difference there. Uh, that is a conversation to be had. So that's one area where where perhaps you've got to take a look at that and say, look, is, is, is there you know, like I said, when they're bringing the Ford plant to Hardin County, there, there's not enough people unemployed in the area to fill the jobs. It requires more people to move into the area. So then that goes into the other argument that these county and city governments need economic development to make ends meet. And while there is perhaps at certain population markers some truth to that, the example I gave before the break is a police force, for example. Depending on the geographic area, you could see that you know a police force needs the same amount of officers to, to patrol 5,000 people living in an area as 
as like 10 or 15,000 because it's just such a wide spread out area that it's about response time, not as much about the volume of calls that they get. And so they could see an expansion of population without having an increase in cost. So there are those fiscal cliff markers. Where do those exist for an area? I don't know. And nor does the government because they don't care about that. That's not what they're looking at either. And so that begs the other question. They just claim we need more revenues to make ends meet. But if you're not looking for a fiscal marker and an opportune time, people in business like me, there are points where I see a plateau of we have high profitability. And if we grow like another couple thousand dollars in revenues weekly or monthly or what have you, that would demand us to have to hire another manager. And then like our net cost, our net profits would actually be lower, even though we're making more revenues. And so we would then want to invest in marketing and things to get back to an optimum point where now we're making more net profits than we were before, but it takes us some time to get there because it's like a, it's like a, like a camel hump, I guess you'd say, or whatever. And people, you, you know what I'm talking about. But for government, they don't identify those. They just always claim they need more. I mean, as a state, they're right now claiming we need more people in the state to make ends meet. But my response to you, they're not even talking regionally. They just say generally in the state. Because Hardin County didn't need more people. It was plenty big enough. They have E-Town, plenty big enough, right? They're looking at a, a mega site there in Richmond. Richmond doesn't need more people. They have people are employed. They have plenty of people living in the area. There's not large amounts of regional unemployment in that area either. And so they're saying, no, we need to, we need to attract in more people to the state. We don't care where they go. That's what the state's saying. Because we need to make ends meet. My response is, if you can't pay your bills with 4.4 million Kentuckians, how are you going to pay your bills with eight? 0.8 million Kentuckians, if you doubled it. So when their claim is we need to grow to pay our bills, it says, whoa, 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 whoa. If that isn't a part of a conversation of saying, this is where we need to grow to, we need to hit this point, and then we can stay around that kind of area, and we will be okay financially, we will be able to pay all of our bills without having to have too large of a tax burden on our citizens. If there's not a goal point, but just some out in the way phantom, we need to grow to this point, or we'll just grow, period. Well, that's not about any kind of fiscal anything. You are not fiscally responsible. If you just need more money and you don't even know how much, that's not fiscal responsibility. That's just you wanting more power as a government. So return to the question. I want a limited government, so I wrestle with the idea of cutting a business deal that more people can be hired. So... In what situations would, uh, would I say my current governmental philosophy support it? Large amounts of unemployment in an area, like large amounts, you know that you're going to bring in these jobs and there's people looking for those jobs. That's one. Two, if you're trying to say, look, we need more employers in this area, uh, we're not super desirable, man, because we're not near highways or things. So maybe providing a fiscal incentive is it. But we need more employers in this area because we need to attract in more people until we get to this XYZ point, at which point we don't need to worry about attracting in more people because we we can pay our bills. And if you can't pay your bills, and if you're somebody like, like I said, E-Town, the state of Kentucky as a whole, uh, you know, Louisville, Lexington, some of those places, um, and, and you got to look at your local area. And if you can't pay your bills, Jesmyn County, Nicholasville, Georgetown, Richmond, Madison County. If you're saying, I can't pay my bills with the people I have in here now, that's not a let's add more people so I can't afford to pay my bills for more people problem. 
That's a you need to get control of your fiscal responsibility problem. And then outside of that, and then people say, well, you should always be growing uh, because, you know, you don't want to decline. And then which I say, good, deregulate uh, small businesses, deregulate the, the, make it easier, remove any governmental roadblocks you can to stop people from opening businesses. So you don't have large amounts of unemployment. As a state, they should basically be never doing this unless they have a county that's in a situation where it's got to make ends meet and there's a plateau point that they've identified clearly. They've articulated it to everyone and that's what they're trying to get to. And they're only, and as a state, they're only interested in doing that because they are, um, you know, redistributing wealth from other counties into that county in order to help them make their ends meet. So the state's saying, look, if we quote unquote invest a few dollars right now, we won't have to keep taking money from everybody else and giving it to them, kind of like teaching them to fish versus continuing to just give them fish situation. That's a conversation, but those aren't the conversations they're having. They're not looking at those numbers. They, they don't have a ideal amount of citizens in each County that once they hit now, no longer will the state care about bringing jobs into that area, into that County or nor long, no longer will the County or city governments care. That's not what it's about. They just want generally more people, more money, more power. That's what it's about for them. So that's how I wrestle with it. Hopefully Trey that answered your question. So uh, another thing before we get into Matt Lockett's uh, House Bill 94, Constitutional Amendment, uh, Eric Dieters has filed uh, as a Republican to run in the primary against Thomas Massey. Now, some of you may remember Dieters from the governor's election. Now, for the last several years, Dieters has been making a lot of noise about running for this spot uh, against Massey. He doesn't like Massey. He doesn't make any qualms about it. If you want to figure out his arguments about it, you can go check that out. Uh, if you want to make up your mind on Massey, go check that out. I'm not here to necessarily tell you who's right or wrong in that situation. Um, you know, I, I do think when I look at Congress as a whole, I think Massey's the least of our problems. He's one of the better congressmen out there, in my opinion. And he, you know what? He certainly has a principle that's not just driven by who's ever giving him money. And so that I have to admire. He does have a, a political principle. Um, and if I look at how I wish my Congress people would vote on things and I see Massey's right, how I would want to vote 80, 90% of the time, while a bunch of other people are 40, 50% of the time, well, then I'd ask a question of, <clears throat> is, is Massey the one we really want to concentrate on taking out, you know, or would it be better to take out somebody who's not, um, you know, who's, who's well more awful, uh, especially in the state too, you know, some, some people that vote worse in Congress, but regardless of, of whether or not you think Massey should even be challenged in the primary or in the general to begin with, whether or not you think he's a good legislator, Massey, uh, was making noise to run against him as an independent was a Republican at first. And then he said, I'm, he's going to run as an independent. And uh, then he recently though, went down to Frankfurt and filed to run against Massey in the primary as a Republican. And I've seen some people posting about this. I have some bad news for you all that want to see a Massey Dieters primary. I don't think it's going to happen. And here's why um, Dieters. It looks like Dieters is ineligible to be in the Republican primary. Um, now, generally speaking, I, while I agree with the rules, a lot of the rules we have on filing, I agree with them. I do think at the same time, it is a tragedy, quote unquote, a tragedy 
it's a drama, right? Not, not tragedy. Not like I personally think it's a tragedy, but it's just stupid. Uh, when somebody can't run for office, uh, because of missing something by a few days or by having somebody not sign or that person's wrong or one signature wasn't notarized properly, you know, dumb little knick knickknacky things like that. I think it's awful no matter who's running for that to not be the reason why somebody runs. But I do agree with the rules, if that makes sense, right? Like, I agree you shouldn't be... Um, I agree you shouldn't be like going 30 over the speed limit in almost all circumstances. But when I, somebody personally that I know gets a large speeding ticket, I still personally am like, man, that sucks. Right. If that makes sense. So um, it's not that what I think they did was right or wrong. It's just that, yeah, that kind of sucks. And so in the same way, when I see somebody not qualified to run for office because they're ineligible for the ballot, uh, I'm kind of like, well, that kind of just sucks, sucks for them, sucks Sucks in general just because it's stupid. It's just stupid. Um, so hopefully that that makes sense to what I'm saying because I, I'm, I, I, I would feel this way regardless. In fact, I was up at for final filing day. Um, regardless of how I personally feel about anybody in a race, I would feel this way. Um, because I was actually up there for filing day. Um, let's see. Um, when was that? Friday, this past Friday. I was up for the final day of being able to file to run for office in Kentucky. And there was this guy filing to run as a Democrat in Louisville. This is a completely blue district, but he was filing to run as a Democrat in Louisville. Now I'm not a Democrat. Don't like Democrats. Don't like liberals disagree with almost everything they have to say a hundred percent. That being stated, there was a problem with his paperwork and he was a little confused on how to handle it. And me having this experience you know, I said, look, I pulled him to the side and said, look, I'm not a lawyer, but this is what I do in this situation. Um, you know, maybe talk to a lawyer or just try to do this and take your chances. Um, and, and that's a Democrat filing to run for office. I have zero care if that person wins or loses or what have you. That's a blue district to me. They're all going to be radical and crazy anyways, but, but I still dislike somebody not being eligible to run for office. So why can't Deidre's run for office? Well, I'll be telling you that after this short break, you're listening to the Andrew Kubrider show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you're back with the Andrew Kubrider show, your source for Kentucky politics. As always, if you want to reach out to the show, email info at the Before the break, we we're talking about Eric Dieter's running against Thomas Massey in the primary, but I don't think he'll be on that ballot come May. And here is why. Uh, he doesn't actually qualify for the Republican ballot. Um, here's his uh, voter information registration um, with the state. I've blocked out his address. Technically, it's public record, but I still blocked out his address because I'm not going to share around somebody's information like that. But anyway, so um, the problem is, so he tried to run as a independent. He was going to do that. And then he decided, I guess at the last minute, to run as a Republican. And if you see under his voter information it says, can I vote my party's primary election? It says, no. What's that mean? Well, Dieters can't vote in the Republican primary coming up in May because he was not a registered Republican as of January 1st. So if you want to run as a Republican on the primary ballot and vote in the primary, you have to be registered as a Republican uh, come December 31st at midnight. And I guess Dieters changed his registration from independent back to Republican 
after the first of the year. So he's not actually eligible to run against Massey in the primary. Now he could have chosen to run as an independent in the general still, um, you know, before he changed his registration to a Republican. But the minute he changed his registration after the first of the year, he couldn't run as an independent and he couldn't run as a Republican either because he's not the party that he's running for or whatever. He's not of that status come the first of the year. So Dieter's no longer uh, will be able, I, I do not believe, like I said, it's it's going to go through the courts, but based upon what I'm seeing, I do not believe Dieter's will be eligible to run against Massey at all, independent in the general, or as a Republican in the primary at all this year, uh, due to his mistake on party registration. Like I said, I agree with the rule. Yes, I don't want people who just are a Democrat then change to a Republican the day before they go and file. And I don't want a person who's an independent that says, oh, I, I guess, oh, this seat's open and no Republicans running. I'll just change my registration and run. That's not what I want, right? I agree with the rule. You may disagree with it and that's okay and odd, but I, I, I would say that's odd for you to disagree with the rule just because it's about protecting, quote unquote, the integrity of not wanting, uh, uh, you know, pretend Republicans, Republicans in name only, rhinos, Democrats trying to be Republicans, you know, liberals pretending to be ours. It's it's a defense against that because it makes them be registered. And at the same time, it protects our closed primary process, which I'm for too as well, because why should Democrats or independents get to have an opinion on who represents the Republicans on the general ballot? So for that reason, he's, uh, I believe he will be ruled ineligible in court. Um, like I said, agree with the rule sucks for, I, well, I don't want to say sucks for him in a negative way, but yeah, that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. And that's the way it happens. Like I said, I'm personally, generally speaking, I like Massey. Um, you know, I, I probably would have told people, Hey, I, I don't see a reason to trade out Massey. I think uh, he's done a pretty good job, especially compared to the other, you know, five Republican legislators in Kentucky that you have to choose from to putting running against. Cause remember too, I mean, uh, you're, you don't have to live in that congressional district. You just have to live in the state. Um, so, you know, Dieters could have chosen to run against Andy Barr, Brett Guthrie, uh, Hal Rogers, Comer. Um, you know, he, he could have chosen to run against any of the other four Republicans in the state who I think even if you like those four, I do think objectively speaking, if we're looking at their voting record and what is conservative, you would say Massey's the best out of all of them. So if I'm going to put my time, effort, and energy into getting a congressman out of office, which is a lot of time, effort, energy, money, I don't think it'd be Massey would be the first one. I think objectively speaking, somebody like Barr would be a greater, much greater threat to our conservative ideals than Massey will ever be. But once again, that's my opinion. Take it or leave it. Um, but, okay, so uh, the, another debate that's kind of flared up here and some people have been debating with me is Matt Lockett's House Bill 94, which is uh, basically a retry of uh, a part of, a, of the Amendment 1 issue from 2022. So you may remember this from 2022. There's an amendment on the ballot that would allow the legislature, one, to call itself back into session, but two, it would take away from... Uh, the the signy die days basically it would say that the legislature has from January the you know first was it first Tuesday in January I believe so it had from the first Tuesday in January until December 31st 
uh, to be in session. It would still have 60 days on the even years, 30 days on the odd years, but it would be able to stretch those days out over all 52 weeks. So if you figure they take off a few weeks here and there, take off four weeks, uh, let's say for Christmas and, and four weeks in there. So basically you'd reasonably see, um, you know, a f- you could see 44 weeks of legislative time. So on a, on a 60 day session, you could see them having um, 1.3 days a week. So they could have like every Friday and then another. And then obviously for a 30 day session, uh, they could have one day a week for 30 weeks that they're in session. And the idea behind this, the thought process is to stretch out, take away that so you can stretch these days out over the course of the year. Um, And there's, there's a few arguments for and against, Uh, but, but, I'm going to try to argue this and and present these arguments because I have opinions. Other people have opinions. I don't want to misrepresent what their thought processes are. But to understand what this bill does fully, fully to understand the concept here, you got to know how session goes now. So how our legislative sessions work now on even years, it starts the first Tuesday in January and it goes till April 15th. And within that time frame, they can have 60 days of session. Uh, and session days are days where they actually meet and pass bills. Okay. So they actually meet and can vote on bills and take action on bills. Okay. And then on odd years, they have 30 days and they have from that first Tuesday in December until the end of uh, March. So you have till the end of March, first Tuesday uh, in, in January, and then until the end of March, 30 days spread out over that period of time in order to pass any bills you want to. Now, outside of that, it's up to the legislator to put in place the calendars that they want to put in place. Now, during this time, you have a few different committees. So understand there's a difference between interim and standing committees. Okay. So remember the process to pass a bill is it gets proposed. It gets assigned to a committee. Committee has a hearing on it. Committee passes the bill forward to the house or to the Senate they have a vote on it. Then it goes to a committee. They may take action on the bill to pass it forward if they choose to, to the to the floor and then the opposite body. So if it started in the House, it'd be the Senate now votes on it and passes the bill. Now, when currently they're not in session. So how it works is, is you come in in January. During that time, they have, of course, non-committee meetings. They have meetings all the time. But then also they'll have uh, what's called a standing committee meeting which is standing committees. There's ones in the house. There's one in the Senate. They're the ones who bills get assigned to that then take action on a bill. So there might be, you know, 10 legislators on the house standing committee on agriculture. And so if it's a bill to deal with farming, uh, it would go to that committee and then that committee on a session day. So on one of the 30 days on odd days, 60 days on even days, they would then be allowed to vote or pass that bill forward to the legislature for them to take action on. Now, from the end of session until the beginning of the next session in January, so from like, you know, the end of of March or April 15th until January 1st, that kicks off what's called interim committees. And these are committees that they don't take actions on bills, but they have hearings when uh, uh, the legislature isn't in session. They have about one a month where they hear about issues in order to prep and prepare them for the regular session coming up. Now, when, when session first ends, there is a, a three months of a break normally ish. 
And then the interim committees kind of pick back up and then, uh, and people start attending them more often and then, uh, they do more. And then that kind of ramps up until we get into session. And then in session, the interim committees kind of go away. The standing and statutory committees continue to meet and they can make action on bills and move that forward, uh, in order for the ledge and pass those forward for legislature to take full action on. So how would then taking away the need to end in March or April affect that? Well, we're going to have that conversation after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Before the break, we are going over Matt Locke. It's House Bill 94 proposed constitutional amendment to take away basically the ending date of legislative sessions, allowing them to spread the time out. And we're going over how this would affect things. And uh, I'd gone over kind of where we are now and what the legislative process is for committees. So the first question is, is with this endpoint being taken away, this would radically change how we do committees. Uh, you could see a few things, right? You could see that, okay, well, they only meet on Fridays. Let's say the session day uh, a week is, is they do one session day a week now, and they meet on Fridays. And so they could maybe just meet on Fridays, and that's when they take action on bills and everything else, um, and that could be it. Or what you could see them do is have a interim committee that is only uh, between each Friday where they're meeting for session. Hopefully you guys are following me here. Um, because we're taking those 60 days, spreading them out over, you know, 52 weeks, but you'd have some weeks where obviously you're not doing anything. So, you know, 48-ish weeks, 44-ish weeks, you'd take 60 days, spread it out over 44 weeks. So you could have a session day every Friday and then every third week have a second session day. So what they could do is have a interim committee uh, that meets, you know, three, four days a week or, or meets once a week before Friday. And basically has all the debates and everything that they're going to have on the bill at that time. And then when they meet Friday, it's a 10-minute meeting for them to actually pass the bill and take action on it. And then now it can be read uh, into the House there that day. Um, so you could see them with that radical change of the committee process, which you could end up happening, would be you could see them have committee hearings throughout the week and then on the actual session day, they just quickly pass a few bills and move forward. Uh, and then all the real work's being done those other days of the week. So by taking away that, that point, by taking that away, um, you would certainly be turning this into a full-time legislature. By saying there's not three months out of the year where you don't really do anything. And then there's three or four months ramping up to the legislative session where you're doing more planning. And then you have 60 to 30 days to pass. And then you then have three or four months where you don't do anything. So this, this does turn it into a full-time legislature. Um, there's people who would argue and say somehow it doesn't. Um, but every single legislator I've talked to, even the ones that are for this bill, will say, yeah, yeah, this is obviously going to make us into a full-time legislature. Because if you, you could have one or two days a week, and then the rest of the time, you're having committee hearings and, and prepping for what you're going to do on that session day. So it's radical. We'd turn it into a full-time legislature. Now, perhaps you disagree with me on that, but um, I just, I don't see how, not to mention this too, every single session you have, you know, four or eight days 
of time where they don't do anything. I mean, take this session that we're in right now. We've had four session days out of 60 already, and not a single bill has even been called to be voted on because they've had to take action on bills those four days. They've had to assign bills to committees. They've had to, um, you know, have committees, have, have, read, have readings on the bill. Committees have hearings on the bill, right? They got to they gotta do all those actions on those session days, but they haven't actually met to vote on a bill in the House or Senate yet. And we're four days in already, and it'll probably be five or six days before the first bill gets voted on in the first place in the Senate. And I think there's only been one hearing on a bill over four days. So that would take all that away. There wouldn't be those loss of four to eight days of session time at the beginning, and there wouldn't be three or four months of planning time. Instead, they would be maximizing all that time, which means... They would also, oh, and they'd be maximizing that time over the course of the entire year, which means they're now a full-time legislature. Now, I was recently engaged with a good friend of mine, and his his argument is, is that it wouldn't do this somehow, that um, it doesn't increase the size of scope of government, but at the same time, even he, oops, hit my mic, he, at the same time, even he would admit uh, it gives them more time for planning, and I, I don't know how more time for planning doesn't translate into more bills and more laws passed. So, you know, to let you know up front, I'm personally against this. I'll go over why in a bit. But first, I want to try to represent the arguments for this kind of radical change. And many good people I know are for this, and many I know are against. Uh, this is an issue where both sides are making some good arguments, and I'll leave it up to you to decide how you actually feel. You can go ahead and comment your opinions below if you're listening to this on the legislature, on Facebook or Rumble, YouTube, uh, Twitter. Um, but you can also, of course, email me. I've been getting your emails. Keep them coming. Info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. If you make a good point, I'll respond to it here on air. But if we all accept that the, the general consensus that this would make the legislature full-time and would allow for more bills to be passed, then we can have the conversation on, is that a good thing or bad thing? So the arguments why this would be a good thing are that it would help rein in the governor. And, and really, that wasn't a conversation till COVID. This really was brought about by our current governor um, because of his response during COVID and the fact that legislature couldn't really do anything about it. And, you know, and I think it's worth mentioning that this the problem, though, with our governor was kind of created by our legislature to a degree. So, so this wasn't a conversation until COVID and is brought about by our current governor, but this has been a problem for a long time with our state government. You know, a lot of people would say our founders initially wanted a really strong governor, but that's not the case. They wanted a strong executive, but this was dispersed out over several elected positions. For an example, the governor currently has the budget of the, uh, the, the office of the budget and the department of revenue. But when, when this state was first founded for most of its history, that's kind of a new development. That was with the treasurer's office, where it should remain. For a long time, the agricultural's office was called, uh, when this was first incepted, was the Department of Agriculture, Labor, and Statistics. But Labor and Statistics has been moved over to the governor. So it's not that the state was founded on the idea of a strong governor. The state was founded on the idea of a stronger executive. And a legislature that only came in every two years didn't really do much. The reason why is because it had a strong executive like the governor 
like the treasurer, like the ag commissioner, but also like your local sheriffs and judge executives and magistrates who had a lot more power at the time too as well. And what has happened to grow the power of the governor has been that the legislature has created these problems. First, you have in the 90s, of course, they created 39A, the Emergency Powers Act. This is the entire thing that gave the governor the ability to shut down businesses and deem who is essential and non-essential in the first place, created by the legislature. Every time they create another board that is in charge of licensing or regulations of something that is giving more power to the executive and is being created by the legislature. So the, the movement of, of control of creating this office of the budget and labor statistics being moved on to the governor done by the legislature. So, I mean, I mean, it, it, it is quite obvious that this problem of our powerful governor was created by the legislature and can be fixed by the legislature with the current tools they have available. If they, because the way, reason why they sell this, this idea of a full-time legislature spread out over the years, that, well, we'll have better oversight over the governor and the legislature can grab control. Now, keep in mind, though, that there are three places where power can be, right? And, and people are looking at power as either the legislature has the power or the executive has power. But remember, you, the people, have power. Until the legislature passes a law or a regulatory agency to oversee that part of your life, you have domain over it until they say otherwise. And so when the legislature is making more laws, the question is, is are they going to be limiting the governor's power and the government's power? There's the laws that they can pass to do that. Or are they going to be passing laws to regulate your dominion and control over your own life? And so far, not just historically, but also recently, all our legislature has done is told us that when they take action, they do it to destroy our lives, not to hold the governor to account. Look, I'm running out of time. I got to wrap up quick. So sorry to abruptly kind of change. But here's my point is that the reason why our governor is such tyranny is because of the legislature. And the legislature has a lot of tools already before them to peel that back, to address that. And when they have exhausted all their tools, and if the governor is still tyrannical, or if there's still not enough of a check on the governor for them to handle, well, then at that point, let's have a conversation about giving you more time to pass more bills, because inevitably, what you do most of the time, legislature, is pass bills that take freedom and, and domain away from us, the people, not away from the governor. And once that changes, and once you're you're committed to a shrinking government that's not going to spend more money, let's have a conversation. But I don't like passing constitutional amendments based upon whether or not we've got good people in office. Well, y'all, that's what we've got time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I'm sure I'll have to clean up on this topic tomorrow. So make sure you're tuning in. Uh, until then, we'll see you. Have a great day.